him. We're going to start in verse 10 and go on to verse 17. It's a, it's a good passage for us this morning. Let's take a look at God's holy word. Now, as he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. I had actually mapped out this uh, text for the first Sunday of the new year, and you may have even seen my advertising, the holidays are over, what's left to celebrate? And this message talks about something worth celebrating. I thought it was a good transition. There's still something worth celebrating. And when you think of something worth celebrating, uh, you, you see this healing in this passage, and you think, that's great, that's, that's one of the things Jesus is so famous for, is healing people in these incredible situations that's worth celebrating well the focus of this text is not just the miracle not just the deliverance not just what happened to the woman the focus of the text when you look at this whole passage and where the greatest number of verses and dialogue and the focus of Jesus go we see that the focus is on the reactions to the miracle. You've heard what the scriptures say out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our reactions to the presence of God, to the work of God, tell us much about our relationship with God. If your heart does not leap with joy at contemplations of who God is and what He has done, check your heart. But when we see Jesus at work, whether in the scriptures or in our own midst, and our heart is happy and resonates with that, that's a very good thing. We start with uh, this passage by looking at the sorely afflicted woman before we uh, look at her compassionate Savior. Let's just briefly set the stage this morning. 
And this person, we don't know her name, but we see uh, a bit of her symptoms described and we see the setting. We're told as Luke carefully, Dr. Luke pieces together the life and ministry of Jesus, he says that Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So Jesus is doing ministry, he's in a synagogue, Jewish folks are all gathered around to hear the word of God as Jesus teaches. The setting of a synagogue, need I remind you, is a very significant place when Jesus is there. Synagogue worship started um, when God's people were in exile in Babylon, they didn't have access to the temple. What do they do when they didn't have access to the temple for worship? Well, they had rabbis who would read portions of God's word. They'd study it. They'd sing. They'd pray. They'd do what they could in gatherings. Synagogue means gatherings. And that really, in many ways, becomes the model for the Christian church to have gatherings around the word of God. Well, in these uh, gospel stories, Jesus often is in the synagogue, but that's often a place of conflict. It's been a while since we looked at Luke chapter 4 when Jesus went to Nazareth. He unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and read about uh, all the things that Messiah would do. He set down the scroll and said, today these things are fulfilled in your hearing. And what was their reaction? Uh, There was disagreement. And indeed, an angry mob tried to harm Jesus, Luke chapter 4. Later in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in another synagogue, this time in Capernaum. And there he rebuked some demons. And the response was more awe. This is pretty interesting. In Luke chapter 6, he's in a synagogue again. And, and the particular people in the synagogue that are named in Luke 6 are Pharisees and scribes. They were opposing Jesus and they were watching him carefully, especially in the synagogue. And on that occasion, Luke 6, he heals a man with a withered hand right before their eyes. And they're upset. Why are they upset? This is the Sabbath day. You shouldn't be doing work. Well, here we find Jesus again in the Sabbath. And as soon as Luke writes, there was a woman who had a problem. You can guess where this might go. This is the last occasion recorded in Scripture where Jesus is in a a synagogue teaching and, and doing ministry. This is kind of the culmination of that. When we get to the next chapter, uh, he'll still talk about the Sabbath, but he won't be in the synagogue. So this is really a climax to this subplot of what happens in synagogues. It should be a place of worship, reading God's word, a place of hope where faith is nurtured and strengthened. But instead, at least in those days, under the rule of certain Pharisees and rulers, many of the synagogues were just strictly religious rituals. For us, there are many reasons to come to church. And hopefully we're gathering ourselves in this present day, 2024, for the right purposes. And that if and when God works in our midst, we would react properly. And we would rejoice. And that we would be looking for God to do such things. And not simply preserving our routine and our rules.
Well, back to this sorely afflicted woman, she had symptoms, both physical and spiritual symptoms. Do you see that? Dr. Luke in verse 11, and I, we call him doctor. We, we believe him to be the physician that accompanied Paul. He did careful research putting together this gospel and then the book of Acts. He has a lot of detail, especially when he talks about physical symptoms in his gospel. And he's a very credible historian, as he writes. He uses a particular phrase for this woman, that she had not just a spirit, but he says a disabling spirit, two words in Greek. And the disabling means weakness, lack of strength, sickness, or frailty. So she had this spirit, uh, uh, this, this quality of life that was horrible. And it seems to be pointing to the presence of a demonic spirit that was afflicting her or bothering her. We would not go as far to say that she was possessed by this spirit as the gathering demoniac. Demon possession means uh, the demons have, have control. She's being afflicted. She's not being controlled. Where is she on this day? She's at worship of the one true and living God. You don't think the demons brought her there. But she has this affliction, this difficulty. There are other cases in the, in the Bible and in Luke's gospel where physical ailments are connected with demons. In Luke 4, verse 40, there were many that were sick with demons. And in Luke 11, there was a man who was mute because the demon made him mute. And we have to be careful. Don't let the critics of the Bible say, oh, those were primitive times. They said every illness was a demon. Somebody's got the hiccups. They've got a demon of hiccups. Somebody's got a fever. They've got a demon. Give me a break. They could discern illness. And someone like Luke or the apostles could discern spiritual causes. And when that was discerned and inspired writers of scripture tell us that there was something more involved, that is a credible testimony. Physical and spiritual ailments were at work here. And that spirit of disabling had a horrible effect on the woman. You see how she's described. There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. And could not fully straighten herself. Can you imagine what that would be like? To be hunched and, and not be able to rise? The word for bent over here is used once in the Greek. And, and it must be a very peculiar situation that's being described. The, the Greek word is, is even used in modern day medical analysis when you talk about scoliosis and some of those things. Um, the best the Bible scholars think that this was something with their back. It was damaged and then fused and she was stuck in this rigid bent over position for 18 years. Not 18 days, not 18 weeks. 18 years. She was well known as the bent woman. It's a huge difficulty. How do you work? How do you reach for anything? How do you sleep? How do you relate to people when your face is primarily somewhere else and you're trying to hear and, and, and interact? 
your head always down. That's a nasty, difficult affliction. Yet she had done nothing wrong, as best we can tell. Later on, we'll be talking about what Jesus says. And in verse 16, he says that uh, it was Satan's work that needed to be undone. He knew that there was uh, an ill spirit that was causing this physical reality. And you know, many people have looked at this bent over woman and its predominance in this gospel as it describes the ministry of Jesus among Israel, Israelites who often weren't getting it, they say this woman is, is kind of like a picture of Israel, limited in their fruitfulness. And um, she's kind of like a metaphor for their spiritual condition, trying to get to worship, but just hindered and, and afflicted. That may be the case. This sorely afflicted woman. And she's in a synagogue on the same day Jesus is there. Her life is about to change. What we see with Jesus again is his rich compassion. We see his authority and his power. Time and time and time again. You can't help when you read the Bible but see such a beautiful picture of Jesus. We first notice his compassion. The way Luke records the the proceedings he had been teaching it was an it's an ongoing situation and then it says in verse 12 when he saw her when Jesus saw her was it during the teaching he began to take note of the bent over woman and when the teaching concluded he saw her he paid attention to her he took note of her as someone who was probably overlooked for a long time by others He not only sees her, but he calls to her. He connects to her. Come, approach, dear woman. There are some Bible scholars and preachers that will say, well, when Jesus is calling her, that's a test of her faith. Is she going to come to Jesus or not? I think that's going too far. I think Jesus is simply inviting a woman to come forward, to come closer in a time where uh, distances were often kept, especially when someone had a physical affliction. He connects with her. Is it a test of her faith? I don't think so yet. When she's healed, who does she praise? She doesn't praise Jesus. You're the son of God, Messiah. No, she just simply praises God. Why, Why would I point that out? Well, the way Jesus works doesn't always require a theologically profound act of faith. You know, God can act unilaterally. Do you ever think about that? I think that's part of the definition of being God. You do what you please. And so Jesus calls her uh, to himself and he frees her and heals her. He speaks words of hope to her and he touches her. You have to remember in the ancient world, they had rules about lepers and, you know, keep your distance. And and anyone with an affliction was, was kept at arm's length, but not with Jesus. Jesus touched her. Human touch. The modern world, for all its advances, can't improve on that. It can be a blessing to show compassion and care with human touch. 
Jesus shows his compassion for this woman. He takes time for the needy. The most important teacher ever to walk the face of this earth, making the Father known in divinely inspired ways, took time for the bent over woman at the service that day. Jesus, with his compassion, he's the epitome of compassion, is he not? But he goes on in the, in the, in the fact that she's healed, he's also revealing his authority and his power. And that's unmistakable. We're told that when he uh, spoke to her, woman, you are freed from your disability, and he laid his hands on her, verse 13, and immediately she was made straight. Immediately. The power of Jesus. You think about some of these faith healers today. uh, You know, they, they touch, they do their thing, and they, it's hard to tell, you know. I feel different. Uh, My leg is kind of longer than it used to. We we just don't know what they're doing. And I would discount most of them. Sorry, I didn't mean to get off on the faith healers. But when Jesus healed, people were healed instantly and fully. Paralytics get up and walk and they carry their bed out of the building. The man with the withered hand could shake your hand with strength as it was restored. The woman with the disabling spirit who had been bent over stood straight. That's the power of Jesus. Who in world history does such things as Jesus? These signs, these powerful, miraculous signs were to confirm the teaching that came out of his mouth. The power showed he's the real deal. He is the Messiah. And it showed his authority. Previously, when he would cast out demons, he would command them and they would have to obey. Who commands the demons? Well, of course, some of Jesus' opponents said he's the prince of demons. He's working with them. And Jesus says, come on, guys. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Why would the, the leader cast out his? No, he's the son of God with authority over all things. He can command the wind and the waves. He can command spirits. He can command the dead to rise from a grave. The words of Jesus. His power, his authority. It's interesting that later on, verse 15, as Jesus is making his rebuke, he uses the term loose, untie. Um, When he said, uh, how did he express it? I just saw the verse and I got to put on my glasses now, sorry. Verse 15, he uses the word, um, you hypocrites, does not each of you on a Sabbath untie his ox or donkey and lead it. That, that word, untie, is to loose. Uh, if you've ever taken Greek, even in, in secular settings, they usually start with that verb, luo. It would be like L-U-W in English, luo. Luo, luais, luete. To loose or untie, a simple, tiny little verb. But it's used in the crux of this miracle. What does Jesus do for this woman? He said, uh, woman, you are freed from your disability. You are untied. You are loosed. He has the power to do it. 
Jesus sets the prisoners free. And this woman had great joy at her deliverance. Have we pointed that out yet? When he heals her, what does she do? She glorifies God at the end of verse 13. She glorifies God. What did she say? She may have said, hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. And it was a happy moment, right? What Jesus is doing, by the way, in the synagogue, he's not only teaching, but he's demonstrating the gospel. He says, I've come not simply to heal those who have these afflictions, but I have come to bring a message of salvation that shall be to all people. How you can be right with God, how you can be free from your sins, how I can loose and unbind and set you free from your sin and guilt. Douglas Milne said in his commentary, as well as preaching the message of the kingdom, Jesus healed people as a way of displaying the saving power of the kingdom. He didn't just say the kingdom of God is at hand. He showed the power of God to save and bring people into his kingdom. I've alluded to Luke chapter 4 in that text from Isaiah that Jesus read at the early days of his ministry. This is what it said, Luke 4, quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to be the Christ, is to be the anointed one, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus said, that's me. That's now. This is what's happening. And many people in the, in the Holy Land who knew Isaiah and were hoping for the Messiah, they see Jesus doing these very things. And so that's why he begins to gather a following, not just the miracles, but the, the genuine, curious waiters upon the gospel. Let me ask you, If you have seen in the scriptures who Jesus is and what he can do, have you asked him to do that for you? He would call all to come to him. Do you remember the famous line, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will set you free. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus constantly called all who would hear to himself. Come to me. I'll get you untied. I'll set you free. I'll see you forgiven. I'll see you healed and helped. We see what Jesus can do. And we know his mission. Has he done that for you? Has he set you free? If he has, praise the Lord. If he has, tell others. If he has, serve him and bring others to meet him. One reason I love the name Andrew. Andrew in the Bible was a follower of John the Baptist, but when he met Jesus, he said, I've got to go and find my brother and bring him to Jesus. Now, one footnote here. When Jesus presents the gospel and Jesus heals this woman and straightens her up, She didn't live forever. There was some other affliction, old age, maybe she 
crouched a little bit in her old age. That's the way of this world. She would have a normal life. The full measure of the deliverance of Christ comes in eternity. Is appointed unto man once to die. Jesus delivers from sin here and now and into eternal life in the end. And that's good news. That's gospel. Well, let's look here finally at the climax. We've come to just the, the middle of this passage and there's so much more to see here. And it revolves around this religious leader, this synagogue ruler who is rebuked. You would think that having just performed a tremendous miracle, people cheering and praising God, it would be unanimous. Who, who would not be excited about that? Or you hear a testimony or somebody comes into church and says, I, I became a Christian this week. What do I do? Here I am. You know, how do we react to these things? It tells a lot. We're getting to the heart of the matter now. Let's read verse 14. What happens here? Uh-oh. It starts with that negating conjunction. Just a little grammar lesson. It doesn't just say and, it says but. This is connected, but it's different. She's glorifying God, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant. You can just see him acting. He was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. This leader does not react with joy or glory to God at a miracle in his midst. Instead, he's angry with the Messiah for doing Messiah-like things. He's annoyed. He feels his Sabbath rules, as he understands them, have been broken. And that was more important than the repairing of a broken body. His heartless response. He's not only heartless, but he's also a coward. He sees this, he's upset at Jesus, we know that, that's what Luke tells us, but who does he speak to? He speaks first to the crowd. He ignores the woman, he ignores Jesus, and what does it say? Uh, he was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people. So he kind of turns to the congregation. Doesn't want to face Jesus, doesn't even want to pay any attention to the woman who's now standing upright. What a coward. He's grasping, perhaps, to regain control and command of the synagogue. I'm the ruler of the synagogue here. I'll say what we need to rejoice over. And then you know what he does? He throws some scripture at them. Or he tries to. I hope when you see what he says, you see that it's half true. Let's take a look. Because he mangles and changes the word of God. He says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Okay, what's the true part? Yes, the fourth commandment says, six days you shall labor. And on the seventh day you shall rest. So that's, that's not far off. Six days are, are for working in the commandment. And by the way, do you know where you can read up on the Ten Commandments? Because we should still know them. Two places in the Bible where they're listed in full 
Exodus chapter Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Thank you. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But he ta- he's referring to the fourth commandment about the, uh, the, about the Sabbath day. It's not a day for work. But what else does he say? He goes on to say, come on those days to be healed. He's assuming that healing is just work rather than an act of mercy or necessity. He's wrong. And you can often see people who are self-righteous and off track when they misuse scripture. We need to be careful. The fourth commandment does not prohibit healings or acts of mercy. He doesn't even mention them. But he adds to the commandments of God. And that's a danger. In essence, he's saying... Don't be healing people today. We're just here to worship. Don't be helping people. We're just here to worship. Come another day. There's no heart. There's no mercy or pity for this woman. He's oblivious to her need and he's oblivious to the real duty of a believer in God. How are the commandments all summarized love God with all your heart mind soul and strength and the second is like it love your neighbor and that didn't inform his life that day apparently and further he had no grasp of the Messiah's presence or the power of God that had just been displayed Uh, excuse me uh, Mr. Synagogue ruler how do you explain this well she's healed yes but he shouldn't be doing that today He was so focused on his rules and keeping his regulations as he understood them that he rebukes Jesus, said this isn't right, and he's got it wrong. It's a heartless response, it's misguided, and it really tells us a lot. This person... Two represented, uh, uh, he's a symbol for many in Israel at the time. Do you remember what had just transpired earlier? We're starting in the middle of Luke 13, but what was just before this? The paragraph before this, Jesus told a parable about a fig tree that didn't have any figs. And it was going to be judged. That was fruitless Israel. This synagogue ruler is a prime example of a barren fig tree. Delrath Davis puts it in this colorful language. He says this ruler is a living color example of Israel's inability to discern the time, the presence of Christ, and he is exhibit A of the fruitlessness of Israel. Isn't it interesting the way the gospel's written it? You're told about a barren fruit tree and that's bad. And here you have a picture and a story exposing the synagogue ruler as merely religious and not truly right and fruitful. So the Lord rebukes him. The Lord rebukes him. Not only does he speak in verse 14, then the Lord answered. And, And the first thing I really want you to notice, Luke is not just recording the dialogue here. He said this, Jesus said that. 
What does Luke do? He calls Jesus Lord. That's the most subtle work of the narrator to remind you who it is that is about to speak. It is Jesus, the Lord. Previously, he claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath, as well as Lord of the wind and the waves. So the Lord rebukes him and says, first, you're a hypocrite. You work on the Sabbath. What? Yes, you and even others like you work on the Sabbath because you untie and water and care for your animals in verse 15. You hypocrites. And Jesus speaks in the plural because he's, he's not only addressing the ruler, but some in the crowd who maybe were starting to be swayed by him and nodding their heads at him. He's speaking to all to limit the damage. You're hypocrites. And he exposes them. You work on the Sabbath. And what were they doing? Well, they would untie their animal and they'd lead them to the water. Now, the Mishnah, the rabbinic Mishnah, is very clear that you could untie and lead your animal to water, but you couldn't carry anything as you did it. That would be work. And if your beast didn't go to the water, you couldn't hold, this is in the Mishnah, you couldn't hold a bucket for them to drink out of because that would be work. If you brought water to them, you had to pour it into a trough and let them drink for themselves. This is in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is not scripture. But the rabbis treated it that way. They put it on a par with God, even gave it power over God's word. I've read the fourth commandment. There's nothing wrong with watering your animals. There's nothing wrong with loosening them for whatever purpose they need, caring for them. And there's nothing wrong with seeing a demon-afflicted person loosed, set free. It's all fair game. But Jesus says, you're hypocrites. So he, he nails them on their hypocrisy. They will do certain things. They will loose their animal. So he's a little more comfortable. But they're not caring for this woman. And he points out further in his rebuke that she is a believer. Or at least she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a Jew and she's here for worship. And you've not recognized her or helped her, apparently. You don't seem to care for her. She's now healed, and there's no joy at that. And you can see her standing up and see her face, but there's no reaction. And she has come to you for 18 years. And it, had, it would continue if Jesus wasn't present. Even today... Part of the Lord's rebuke is that today you rob God of his glory by ignoring this miracle. This guy's so out of step. Douglas Milne said that Jesus openly opposed those who turned religion into a set of rules that stifle the human spirit and turn a blind eye to their own inconsistencies. Jesus wouldn't put up with that. And so the angriest words of Jesus, hear me, were for religious hypocrites. You're going through the motions and you're gaming the system. Whether you're selling money or exchanging money in the temple courts or keeping people in difficulty on the Sabbath day. 
Jesus will have none of that. And that's a word of warning for us. We're gathered for church, so this could be something we need to think about. If you're here, you're being religious. Don't let it be hypocrisy. Jesus will not stand for that. The Lord's rebuke is at the heart of this passage. The miracle is beautiful, but he shows us where hearts should be. This man's heart was not right. And and before we move on, the Lord also gives us a right view of the Sabbath here. Does he not? Because of the language he uses. And again, we're, we're trying to pay attention to God's holy inspired word. Verse 7, verse 16. In the ESV, it begins with this phrase of necessity. Ought not this woman be loosed? Ought? That's, that's the language of necessity. And in the Greek, it's, it's even more clear. You see the, uh, the fact that it is necessary that this woman be helped. It is part of the purpose of a Sabbath day to show the power and provision of God, is it not? You are missing the opportunities when you gather as God's people without God in your presence or the power of his good news at work. You're missing the point. The Sabbath is an appropriate day to heal. And healing is but a picture of salvation. Jesus said, ought not this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He says it's necessary. It's it's not just even optional. It's really important that we give out the good news and that we desire the power of God to help people in real ways. That's a right view of the Sabbath. As Jesus said, recorded in Mark 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. We're not the window dressings in God's seventh day. The seventh day, the day of rest, is that we might actively bask in the blessings of God because he saves, he works, he has done great things. And we cease from our own labors to acknowledge him. It's all part of the Sabbath day. And Jesus says it's appropriate to help. As we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith or in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, they both have this language in the chapter on the Sabbath near the end that it is a day that is suitable for acts of mercy, acts of piety, and acts of necessity. That's our understanding of the Sabbath commandment. If something is urgent and necessary, let it be done to save a life, to get an animal out of a pit, to get a woman help that she needs. The Lord loves mercy, and this day is a day for mercy. Further, or in conclusion, a couple of Exhortations, something we can focus on so that we take these things with us. Number one, see the needy. See the needy. 
Jesus often saw the needy when others didn't. Even when someone touched him, desiring to be healed, and he sensed that power had gone out from him, he was aware of the need in his presence. He notices this woman's humanity. He sees her brokenness. She's an image bearer who needs grace and divine help. So the question here is, how do you view the needy? Do you have an eye for them? Or do you just keep scanning until you see somebody you know? Oh, hi. On Sunday morning, we get a lot of visitors here. And it's possible, I'm not putting any visitor on the hot seat, it's possible a visitor's come in here pretty needy. And they may sit by themselves or stand by themselves. Do you notice them? I think that's one of the most practical applications of this passage. Do we see people in their needs? And do we see behind this facade? Sometimes people will say, oh, I'm fine. Are you really fine? So we need to see. May the Lord open our eyes. And and secondly, do not rule out acts of mercy. Don't be so focused on your acts of piety that you have no time to do practical things. God bless you. Go on your way. Be well fed. And you don't give them clothing or food. Phil Riken says, how hard it is to offer the sacrificial grace that God might use to save someone in need. How easy it is to be callous, like the ruler of the synagogue. How hard it is to show compassion like Christ. Easy and hard. I know which we're to aim at. How will you view people? How will you help people? Will you help them and how? And finally, the positive note that we began with. Celebrate the saving power of Jesus. God is at work and does great things. Celebrate that and look for God to work. The the disciples of Jesus should delight in what Jesus delights in. He, He was so pleased to help this woman. We need to remember our mission and have a heart for the lost and have a heart for helping And not simply be caught up in our own comforts or our own religion. See, do, and celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for your word from the Gospel of Luke. May it go with us and shape us and direct our steps, we pray. That we might be truly disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.